No one likes to feel stuck, especially by your cloud. But the IBM cloud is the most open and secure public cloud for business. It can manage all your apps and data anywhere. Smart loves problems. IBM, let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash flexible. Welcome to The Sporting Life with Jeremy Schapp. Over the next hour, John Dorenboss, former NFL player and current magician, explains how he wowed his teammates in the locker room. People would be like, oh my gosh, you got to see Dornbos. He can do card tricks. And people are like, oh yeah, this will be good. And then all of a sudden, you just open up fury and deliver completely over-the-top, really cool stuff that people don't expect. You get one shock factor and people love it. Plus, Dr. David Geyer says we need to have more empathy for athletes when it comes to injuries. As an orthopedic surgeon, you know, I focus on making sports safer, but I'm also a big sports fan and I find myself falling into those same traps. And I think we need to step back occasionally and think, all right, these guys are, are putting their bodies on the line for us. We do need to consider what toll this takes on them. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Here's Jeremy Schapp. Welcome to another edition of The Sporting Life. Later in the show, we'll be joined by John Dorenbos, the former NFL long snapper and current magician. We'll be talking about his new book. It is a week in which the New England Patriots are being investigated for cheating again. So we start the show with just the right guest. Actually, she had already been booked. Julie Fenster, whose new book is Cheaters Always Win, the story of American Julie. I should point out this is not a book specifically limited to sports, uh, far from it. But, but sports is a part of it. That's a provocative title. Cheaters Always Win, the story of America. Is it really true? Well, I should also point out that it's not strictly limited to the New, York, New England Patriots either, but it could be, it seems. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> well, the book is kind of about, uh, um, the stark contrast in our, uh, in the attitude toward cheating, even in our own lifetimes, um, and in sports, which reflects 99% of the human experience, um, you know, the, the penalties were much more draconian uh, decades and decades ago. You mean like being tarred and feathered, that kind of thing? <laughs> or at least being, you know, banished for life from your sport, which, which, you know, is a crushing thing to suddenly turn around and say, you will never be on a baseball diamond again, which is what happened to a great pitcher named Jim Devlin. When he was caught cheating in the 19th century, they said, that is it. And he couldn't handle it mentally or emotionally. So um, nobody's going to say that now, as I like to think. I'm trying to count, but I think you get nine strikes and you're out in baseball these days if you're caught doing something. Unless you're Pete Rose, (laughs) who's out of the game forever. But there were many strikes against Pete Rose. We're speaking with J.M. Fenster about her new book, Cheaters Always Win, The Story of America. These days, in the context of sports, when we think about cheating, um, there are all different kinds of ways to approach it, right? I mean, there are those who say, I think this comes from NASCAR, if you're not cheating, you're not trying. Yeah. Um, uh, and you write about that as well. Um, but, you know, there is at the core of kind of the American story, there's Parson Weems and there's George Washington and... and Cheating and lying are not the same thing, but they are related. Uh, you know, the, the cherry tree. Right. Um, how did cheating become more acceptable over the centuries? Well, I'm not exactly sure, but I, I'm, um, 
I'm sure that uh, that part of it is a, a general aura of understanding, you know, which I'm normally in favor of. But uh, another thing is hero worship and the the actual you know asset value of a of a great player these days is too much to banish from you know you're not going to banish a star pitcher for life because he's probably going to be just plain too valuable to too many people on a monetary basis so um the general prosperity of the nation where we're not as dog eat dog as we once were um and i guess like a lot of slippery slopes there might not be any one one reason but the contrast is there. Julie, we like to think of ourselves as a people who believe, and I guess most most people around the world like to think of themselves this way, people who believe in fair play, in honesty, in integrity. Um, but there's also, uh, you know, there's also an appreciation at time for, for people who can get away with it. You know, whether it's the romance of, you know, outlaws or certain bank robbers, um, you know, uh, people in sports who have succeeded. Uh, you know, where does that come from? Where does the um, the ability to kind of celebrate cheating also uh, lie in our character? Well, I'm, you know what I look at a lot, and it enters into college sports in particular, but but all sports is this need to bond. You know, our 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 um, our. The nonconformist or the rugged individualist is really pretty well gone from the American scene, and people bond so much that you know you can barely walk through certain towns if you're not wearing the right sweatshirt or or hat with the college team on it. And so when your team does something bad, it's considered bravado. Um, and when the other you know some other team does something bad, it's cheating. Um, then they're they're crooked. So I'm starting to distrust our our very need to load up our identity with the identity of some team. You know, it's great. I love sports more than anybody you've ever met. And yet, sometimes I think we get subsumed by our uh, by the teams we associate with, and then lose our judgment, lose our ability to criticize. We're speaking with J.M. Fedster about her new book, Cheaters Always Win, The Story of America. Um, why do cheaters win? I think they win, in my sense, you know, we all know that they they may well get the championship like a certain, certain uh, Texas baseball team that's under a cloud right now. The, the Astros seem to have used um, some really backward methods to communicate stolen signals, as you, I'm sure you know very well, which was specifically against the rules of baseball. But um, so, so they win in that sense. Whether that'll stand, we'll find out. But I think they also win because every time they get away with something, we're all a little bit more scarred and the sun comes up the next morning, so it's less dramatic with each, with each time they, they win our our society, if you will, if that isn't too broad, if they when, when they get when they get away with it and we all shrug, then they win. J.M. Fetzer's new book is Cheaters Always Win, the story of America. Julie, thank you so much for joining us here to talk about your book. I'm very thrilled to be here. Thank you. 
This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. John Dorenbos played for 14 seasons in the NFL, primarily as a long snapper. He's also an accomplished magician. And now he is the author of a book as well about his life and his advice for those going through hard times. John, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you, guys. John, what happened to you when you were 12 years old and what happened to your mother? Um, It's a horrific story, um, and it is in some ways the beginning of this remarkable journey of yours, which has taken so many twists and turns over the last 39 years. You, you grew up in Seattle. You're 12 years old. You go off to school one day. What, what happened that day? So when I went home, uh, I learned that my father had murdered my mother, uh, and it was really bad. He used a bench grinder and a sledgehammer and killed her in, a, in the garage of our house. So at that point, and, and you had had, as you describe it, an idyllic childhood. Um, wh- where did you go from there? Well, so my dad ended up going to jail. Uh, he was tried for second-degree murder. And at the time, the max penalty in, in the state of Washington was 13 years. So he was convicted and sentenced to 13 years. Um, and then my sister and I lived in a temporary foster home for about a year, year and a half, where we went through probably the most intense therapy you could possibly imagine. And then eventually we moved down and were adopted by my mom's sister, my Aunt Susan, and we moved down to Southern California. How did you try to process that as a 12-year-old, what had happened? Uh, Therapy. I'll tell you that. Therapy saved my life. And the fact that my sister and I uh, had family around us that wanted to see us succeed and want to see us come out of this. So um, it takes a long time, and it takes waking up every day thinking that you're going to wake up from this nightmare and that none of it's true. And then eventually... Um, one day it just kicks in that this is your reality. We're speaking with John Dorenbos, the NFL veteran, the magician as well, accomplished magician. He is a frequent guest on Ellen DeGeneres' show as well. Um, what role did football play in your life after that traumatic experience? Yeah, so uh, I, I go to high school, and a buddy of mine says, yo, you should play football. And I'm like, no way, dude. Football's for dorks. I like magic. And so <laughs> uh, eventually I went on the football field. And he, he I'll never forget, he told me, you can hit that guy and not get in trouble. And I was like, dude, that sounds awesome. And now, you know, look, I had some anger. I had some uh, resentment and just things that have been kind of um, building up inside of me since, you know, what happened with my family. And so sure enough, freshman year in high school, I hit the football field. And during the day, I could go hit you and not get in trouble. And it was just a natural outlet for all my aggression. How good were you? Uh, Yeah, I was pretty good pretty quick. Uh, I was a linebacker, tight end, fullback. But uh, as a linebacker, uh, believe it or not, I didn't really know the game of football. I didn't really understand it. Pulling guards and the technique of it, uh, I, I didn't understand all that. But I had a natural instinct to just go to the ball. And so I was a linebacker and um, just go tackle the football. That's what I did. We're speaking with John Dorenbos. His new book is Life is Magic, My Inspiring Journey from Tragedy to Self-Discovery. You get to the NFL. You're an all-pro. You spend a long time in the league. Um, at that point, you know, being being a celebrated NFL player um, – had you had you dealt with all the issues from your past? You know uh, that I I had thought about 
and wanted to see my dad. Um, but nothing in my life ever stemmed action. Nothing caused me um, or triggered me to actually execute that. And so um, I end up getting married and my wife gets pregnant. And I realized that before my daughter's born, it's time for me to go see my dad. Why? You know, so eventually I I flew to Spokane two weeks before my daughter was born. And I realized that I wanted to relive that relationship. I wanted to sit there. I wanted to look at him in the face. I wanted to feel the hurt, the pain. I wanted to feel the betrayal. And I wanted to look at him and think about what our relationship should have been and what it could have been and what it wasn't. And instead of... Uh, having resentment about that. And instead of um, repeating it, meaning I think a lot of people, bad things happen to them and that becomes an excuse for why uh, maybe they don't succeed in life. I just didn't want to be that person. So instead I realized that if I can find motivation and the worst thing that has ever happened to me, and instead of repeat it, change it and find motivation to be the best dad that I could possibly be and the best husband that I could possibly be, then I'm going to make this world a better place. So right before my daughter was born, I went and saw my dad. I spent five and a half hours with him for the first time in 26 years. And I said three words that I'd never said out loud. And I said, I forgive you. And I forgave him for being lost. I forgave him for making a mistake. And I wanted to have closure with this part of my life as I was about to become the dad that I never had. What do you think you got out of that meeting? All the things that you wanted? I did, you know, and I I went there realizing this, and a lot of people say, I don't know how you can forgive somebody for what he did. And I I redefine forgiveness. So for me, you know, for a long time, I think forgiveness meant that it it was about winning and losing. If I forgive him, then that means I'm okay with what he did. And that means that now we can be buddies and just go on with our life. I wave the white flag and it is what it is. And I realized that forgiveness for me was about being okay with who I am having closure with my past, um, kind of um, having the circle, you know, come full circle, if you will. And I I forgave him for being lost and I forgave him for making mistakes. And for me, that was enough for me to move on. That was enough for me to have closure. And I got everything out of it that I wanted. I wasn't there for him. I wasn't there for answers. I wasn't there for validation. I didn't need explanations or excuses. I just wanted to go and relive that part of my life and relive all those emotions to realize what I didn't have and to realize what I missed out on so that when I walk away from it, I can just sit there and say, I'm going to be the dad that I never had to my little girl. We're speaking with John Dorenbos about his life and his new book, Life is Magic, My Inspiring Journey from Tragedy to Self-Discovery. The magician part of you, um, how did that help you deal with the things you were going through? You know, after my mom was killed, um, I lived in a foster family for about a year and a half. And then I saw a kid named Michael Groves. He was a 16-year-old magician do a trick. Changed my life. It was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. And I then saw a guy on TV named Bill Malone. And I realized that when I sat down and shuffled cards, the world quieted. It was, the, it was the only time that I wasn't thinking about the adult issues. It was the only time I wasn't thinking about therapy, my dad going to prison, losing my mom, foster homes, moving I could just be a kid. And so I got really good at it really quick. And all my spare time, I sat there and shuffled cards. And that's when the world became magic. And that's when the world quieted. How, what, what kind of uh, reaction would you get when you talked about your magic, did your magic tricks in NFL locker rooms where you spent so many years? 
Yeah, well, so when I first got into it, I didn't do tricks for like years. I, I just literally worked on moves and practiced. And so, you know, when I finally came out to do tricks, they were pretty good. It was a lot more than people were expecting from at the time, a 14 or 15 year old kid. Right. So when I got in the locker room, you know, if, if all of a sudden your buddy says, Oh, Hey, hey, my buddy can play the guitar. He's pretty good. And John Mayer shows up and shreds the guitar. I, I kind of became that with cards where people would be like, Oh my gosh, you got to see Dornboss. He can do card tricks. And people are like, Oh yeah, this will be good. And then all of a sudden you just open up fury uh, and, and deliver completely over the top, really cool stuff that people don't expect. Um, you get one shock factor, and people love it. Who's your hero in the world of magic? Ooh, I got a lot. You know, I, I ended up meeting this guy named Ken Sands, who uh, became a mentor to me in Southern California, and he's got a magic shop uh, in Orange County called Magic Galore and More. And you know what was really valuable about this is. Uh, he didn't always just teach me a trick and okay, hey kid, here's the trick and this is how you execute it. He helped me discover who I was as a performer and he helped me realize that magic is a tool to create a relationship with an audience, whether it's one person or whether it's an arena full of people. You know, musicians use music and music becomes the way that they communicate and they relate. Well, if you do a show and your magic trick is the end all be all, you get a golf clap. But instead, if you do a show where there's emotion and meaning and feeling, and the magic is just the key that brings everybody together, oh, man, you're going to open up a world of, of real magic. And so I'm so thankful that he taught me that lesson. You know, it would be facile, I guess, to make the connection between someone experiencing a horrible trauma as a kid, your mother being murdered by your father, and then losing himself in the world of magic, and that that would somehow fix everything. But But how did magic and the kind of thinking that it requires to achieve in the world of magic, how did it make an impact in your, as you put it, journey of self-discovery? I got lost, and I got lost in magic, and I got lost in the in what magic did for me. And so when I say that I would sit down at a table and I would shuffle cards and work on moves or tricks and the world quieted, it's, it's the one time I didn't think about everything. And so what happened is my brain would be processing life without me realizing it. And I think that's a powerful thing that uh, if we can each find what our outlet is to where the world can quiet and we can enjoy the moment but still process, it's a powerful thing. Your identity as a football player, as one of the best in the world at the game of football, doing what you did for so long, so successfully – uh, people thought of you first and foremost as a football player. How did you think of yourself? You know, I never wanted to be defined as a football player. I never wanted to be defined as just a magician. You know, instead, my, my motto has always been, don't become what you do, be who you are, and love it, and give it everything you got. And so I don't think I ever had, you know, especially when I was done playing, I think a lot of guys uh, have like an identity crisis or, uh, you know, they're trying to find what their new purpose is. Uh, and for me, these are things that just make me me. And every year I played, I thought I was getting cut. And so in the offseason, I would go perform. April would come around, I'd still be on a team. And so I'd show up and next thing you know, 15 years went by. <laughs> um, but for me, not putting that pressure on me that I have to play football. And if I don't, what am I going to do? And how am I going to make a living? I played this game of football because I loved it. But then when the season was over, I just went and continued to live life. And then another season would start, and I loved it, and I was all in. And so 
don't become what you do. Be who you are and give it everything you got and just have it be a, a piece of you. Have it be a story for your grandkids. But realize that all good things come to an end and something else will start. And so that's that's how I've lived my life. A couple of years ago, though, you faced um, a life-threatening situation. W- what happened? How did you deal with it? Yeah, so I was uh, I was with the Eagles. Um, I had just broken a franchise record for the most consecutive games ever played. And then the team said, hey, we want to trade you. And so it wasn't exactly what I was expecting to hear. You know, I kind of thought I was Mr. Eagle and I'd retire an Eagle. Um, so they ended up trading me to the New Orleans Saints. Uh, I played one game in New Orleans. Their doctors then came in town and I did a physical. And sure enough, they discovered that I had a, a heart condition. So they sent me down to the hospital. Uh, I did a bunch of tests. I came back. I was getting ready for practice. And I got a phone call from the cardiologist and the surgeon uh, at the Louisiana hospital. And they basically said, hey, your heart test came back. It's not what we expected. You're never playing football ever again, and you're going to be in emergency open heart surgery probably in the next 48 hours. What were you thinking? I, I got angry, and I got a little bitter, and I got a little, you know, be, became a victim, right? Like, this isn't the way this is supposed to go down, and uh, this isn't the way that my career is supposed to be over. Look, I was newly married at the time. Uh, I had just signed at 37 years old. I had just signed a three-year extension for more money than I'd ever seen. I was in New Orleans. And starting over and kind of having to reprove myself, I felt like I was 25 again. So I thought I was on a roll. And then this is the moment. And uh, this is the moment that I think happens to everybody. It's when we have a plan and life's going great. And then you know what? Life happens. And there's a moment there where we either live in vision or we live in circumstance. And, And I think it's natural that we all live in circumstance. We become a victim and we start talking to ourselves in a negative voice. And then that's when I have to force myself to sit down and rewrite my story. And so that's what I did. I, I found a different meaning for why I was there and what the purpose of me being there. And I had to come to terms with this really, really quick and find find the positive. What was the medical resolution? Uh, so they discovered that I had what's called a murmur, which a, a murmur means that there's blood leak in places that it shouldn't be. Uh, and then on top of the murmur, I had what's called an aneurysm in my ascending aorta. And so in layman terms, there's a vein that leaves the heart that carries all the blood into the body. And that vein should be about the size of a dime or maybe a nickel. Uh, and an aneurysm is when a part of that vein or aorta, it starts blowing up like a water balloon. So there was a piece of my aorta that should have been the diameter of a dime or a nickel, and mine had blown up to be um, the size of a soda can. So mine was six centimeters. Uh, if that pops like a water balloon, you're literally dead instantly. So uh, I was told that every time I hit the field or I ran, I had a much higher chance of that rupturing and dying than living. And so I flew back to uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, Philadelphia University of Penn had the number one guy in the world named Joseph Bavaria who who performs this surgery. Um, I had about an 11 and a half hour surgery. We were in the hospital. My wife and I were in the hospital for well over 30 days post-surgery. Um, and the surgery was successful. And uh, I'm, uh, I got a ticker that keeps on ticking now. We're speaking with John Dornboss. His book is Life is Magic, My Inspiring Journey from Tragedy to Self-Discovery. And so many ups and downs, um, so many uh, difficult things to overcome and so much to celebrate. Many people know you from your appearances with Ellen DeGeneres. Uh, tell me a little bit about that relationship. It, you know, she's been amazing. And she was a show that I always wanted to go on. And so a buddy of mine basically said, John, you should do America's Got Talent. And I'm no, I'm good, man. I'm good. He goes, do the show. So finally, uh, I end up doing the show. I become a finalist. And that show introduced me to Ellen. And when I went on Ellen, I would do tricks and I would try and theme them in 
fitting with what her and I both believe in, and that's be kind to one another and, and try and inspire the world to be a better place um, than what it was when we grew up. And so her and I got along, and she has me on there all the time and has been in my corner and, and tried to help in every way she possibly can. So I'm, I'm so thankful for uh, the professional relationship and the friendship, and she's just an amazing woman. Your dad, now as we've discussed, um, you're a husband, you're a successful magician, um, you, you've got this book out. Um, you know, when you when you look at your future now and the things that you still want to achieve, um, the messages that you want to send to the world, what's paramount? You know, when I had my daughter, something happened that I, I didn't really expect, I didn't really think about, and I realized that you can't preach to people, right? You can't tell people what to do or what to think. They got to feel it, believe it, and become it. And so I realized that my daughter is, is watching me, and my daughter is observing how I treat my wife, and my daughter is observing how I treat her. And a buddy of mine told me that if you aren't the man that you hope your daughter meets one day and marries, then you better change the things about you and become that man that you hope for her to one day meet. And it hit me. And so I think for me, life is now about being this role model for my daughter, who is just my whole world. And so that's professionally, that's personally, that's, that's taking her around the world, that's showing her things and just watching her grow. To me, that's paramount. And everything else will just, will just happen. How do you think you're going to deal with it when she's old enough to tell her about your parents? Just be honest, you know, and, and, you know, one of the things that I was really proud about this book and, and finding forgiveness, having my dad and, and the tools that I had throughout my life and the things that I would tell myself on how I have closure with certain parts of my life and how I've found forgiveness. And when I was done with this book and my daughter was born, if something ever happens to me, it was really cool for me to think about that one day my daughter will be able to read this. And this is the story of her daddy. Like this is forever. And so um, I'm a pretty honest and open person. And when she's old enough and she asks me about grandma and grandpa, then I'll sit her down and I'll tell her. Because when I was 12 years old, I had a lot of reality that was thrown at me, a lot of grown up issues. And I had to face a lot of truths that, that most 12 year olds don't want to face. Thankful for the truth. And that, that's what will be with her. John Dornboss's new book is Life is Magic, My Inspiring Journey from Tragedy to Self-Discovery. He played more than a decade in the NFL, two times a pro bowler, and a finalist on America's Got Talent, season 11, a frequent guest on the Ellen DeGeneres show, uh, and a sought-after corporate speaker. John, thank you so much for taking the time to be on The Sporting Life. Hey, thank you. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. These days, when we think about the impact of injuries in sports, we often start with the impact on a team, real or fantasy. We focus on our interests. Do we focus too little on the impact on the athletes themselves, on their lives, their health, their mental health, their livelihoods? Dr. David Geyer is an orthopedic surgeon in Charleston, South Carolina. He writes frequently about sports injuries, and he is a frequent guest here on The Sporting Life. His columns appear in The Post and Courier in Charleston, and he says it is time to focus on the person who has suffered the injury. Dr. Geyer, thank you for joining us again. 
No, thank you for having me. So, you, you know, um, most of the times you write are about dealing with sports injuries, about the history of sports injuries, as in your book, That's Gotta Hurt, The Injuries That Change Sports Forever, which we've talked about in this show. Uh, but you wrote a column on this subject uh, recently, which which doesn't fall into the category of, of treatment, um, but in terms of perspective, almost uh, medical ethics. Uh, what compelled you to write this column? Honestly, I was really concerned. You know, a number of events happened in a short period of time that sort of raised uh, sort of flag, red flags in my mind. You know, you had the two attack of Aloha injury. You had Zion Williamson going out. And by far, the media reaction wasn't concerned for the athletes. It was, and, and not just the media reaction, the fan reaction on sports talk shows and, and you know, TV shows. The The overwhelming reaction was, how does this affect my team? When's he going to be back? How does this affect TV ratings or playoff seedings? It wasn't in either of their cases, what effect does this have, not just in the near future, but in both Tua and Zion's cases, is this going to shorten their career? Or in Tua's case, is he ever going to play again? And so I think that, and as an orthopedic surgeon, you know, I focus on um, this type of thing too and making sports safer, but I'm also a big sports fan and I find myself falling into those same traps. And I think we need to step back occasionally and think, all right, these guys are, are putting their bodies on the line for us. We do need to consider what toll this takes on them. Is, isn't it just natural, uh, Dr. Geyer, that, that people are going to focus? I mean, we know about these athletes because they play for our teams, because we care about the outcomes of the games. Uh, playing devil's advocate, isn't just natural that that's what we would focus on when they get hurt? Yeah, I think that there's absolutely a natural uh, tendency to do that. I think that the the thing is, is that we need to uh, think of it in, in a bigger picture when, you know, we we say that as as fans and as proponents of the athletes, we do care about their health. And so when the leagues take steps in theory to protect their health, whether it's uh, trying to shorten the season like the NBA has supposedly tried to do or you adopt rules like targeting rules uh, in the NFL, that as fans and as as owners and GMs of of the teams, they need to consider this too, that that it, it really is done with the aim of protecting the players and not just an appearance of protecting the players. I think that's been some of my concerns with, say, that this load management and shortening the NBA season, which really hasn't done that. And, you know, I think we've got to step back and realize the wear and tear on these guys. And yes, it's going to be inconvenient for us. Yes, we may not always get to see our favorite players. And myself as a fan, that's disappointing. But I, we have to understand that if we want them to play for 10, 20 years, uh, we're going to have to take steps to protect their health. You know, when you think about um, athletes and health, Right now, and of course, we're in the college bowl season. It's hard not to come back to CTE um, and think about head trauma in football, but not just in football, also in other sports, concussion sports such as soccer and hockey and lacrosse. When you watch games and you see guys um, get hurt and they head to the sideline and a trainer looks at them and it's like, all right, go on, get back in there. Um, you know, the, the protocols that are being followed that we see, even at the top levels of sport, Division One football, the NFL, th- does it seem like uh, the message is getting through that the health of the athlete is paramount, not who's going to win the game? We're getting better. I, I will say that it's light years over uh, where we were 10 and 20 years ago. The awareness uh, 
not just of the athletes, but the coaches and, and the medical staff, the athletic trainers and doctors, is much greater, and we're doing a better job. I think we can always, always do a better job. I mean, we, we've seen examples. Soccer is notorious for this. There were multiple evidence or examples in the World Cup, and we see it in the English Premier League where guys – suffer obvious concussions and they're back on the field a few minutes later and then we find out days later they don't even remember the game uh you know there's examples of that in in multiple sports and so we clearly need to do a better job but i think we are getting there i think the message is getting out there and and again is it i should also point out it's not just the doctors it's not just the the coaches and, and even the fans players have to understand that this is a serious thing we know that players will hide symptoms of concussions and brain injuries to stay in the game they don't want to let their team and their fans down and so we're getting better but we still have a long way to go we're speaking with dr david guyer he's an orthopedic surgeon in charleston south carolina what do you think it says about um about our society now that we can watch athletes get hurt and instead of considering you know what the impact is going to be on their long-term health or on their long-term career prospects it's about what the seating is going to be in the college football playoff or in or, or, or what the line is going to be for this basketball game it, it, you know i um in terms of what that says about the way we think about our fellow human beings what do you what do you where do you think we stand yeah i mean it's really tricky i mean uh it's as you mentioned where it's only natural for us as fans to to care about our teams winning and doing well um I think there's a little bit of a short-term win now and experience the gain of everything now rather than when we watch sports thinking of the long-term potential. And I I look at, you know, Zion Williamson, and I'm not a Pelicans fan, but if I was, you know, obviously I'd be disappointed if he's playing. But I think then if you step back, and again, without knowing more because I'm not involved in his care, but knowing that that meniscus is a shock absorber in the knee and this guy's 280 pounds and one of the most powerful explosive players we've ever seen – we want him to play past 30, and so if that means even he misses this entire season, I think that's what you do to preserve his, his career. So I think it says a lot of us as a fan if we focus too much on the short term and not long term, because not only does it help the athletes if they're healthy long term, there's no question it helps the teams and the leagues. We know that there are ethics and there are morals and there's a Hippocratic oath in the field of medicine. Should there be for fans? And if there was, what would it entail? Well, I mean, can there be a moral justification for watching some of these sports, which can result in devastating injuries? That's a really interesting way to look at it. You know, I don't know that there's any way to necessarily say, all right, you know, you've got to think about this when you're watching. I mean, just look at at the, the... uh, resurgence of boxing and the, the popularity of, of mixed martial arts in the UFC, where the entire goals of the sport is to inflict loss of consciousness, basically create brain damage. That's the goal of the sport of any one uh, bout. And so um, how, you know, can we sort of uh, resolve ourselves or, or accept ourselves knowing that we're enjoying a sport where the goal is to inflict potentially long-term damage on somebody. That, that's really something that I think each individual fan is going to have to come to grips with. I know I will tell you, seeing uh, patients, I have a lot of young athletes, high school football players, and I get moms and dads who tell me that it's getting harder and harder to let their kids play, um, not just because of the risk to their kids, that's a big part of it, but they worry about what this is doing to all kids. And so I think you're getting a, a sort of a consciousness uh, 
question being asked of do you let your kids participate and, and these adult athletes play these sports, but then on a second level, like you say, you know, should we even be watching them? And, and I'm not trying to criticize people that are fans of these sports. These are just things that we have to think about. Dr. David Geyers, an orthopedic surgeon based in Charleston, South Carolina. His most recent book is That's Gotta Hurt, The Injuries That Change Sports Forever. He writes frequently for the Post and Courier in Charleston, and he's on The Sporting Life as a regular guest. Dr. Geyer, thank you for uh, for writing this column and uh, sparking our discussion about these issues. Thank you so much for having me and, and for letting us discuss this. Thanks for having joined us. I'm Jeremy Schapp, and this has been The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio. We're on every Saturday and every Sunday morning at 6 Eastern Time.